This is Castle Stories, a podcast from Newcastle Castle about the rich history of the North East. Hello, and welcome to Castle Stories. I'm your host, David Silk. This week's episode is all about dragons. Dragons, while an iconic part of the myths of the Middle Ages, are not real. I'm sorry if I'm the first one to break this to you, and it comes as a cruel disappointment to find out that these magnificent beasts do not, in fact, exist. Except wait, what's this? I'm looking at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, an ancient manuscript. Well, a translation of it anyway. And here, for the year 793, it says, Here were dreadful forewarnings come over the land of Northumbria, and woefully terrified the people. These were amazing sheets of lightning and whirlwinds, and fiery dragons were seen flying through the sky. That's not all. From the 1300s onwards, the Conyers family, lords of Sockburn in County Durham, presented each new bishop of Durham with the sword wherewith the champion Conyers slew the worm, dragon, or fiery serpent, which destroyed man, woman, and child. In memory of which, the king then reigning gave him the manor of Sockburn to hold by this tenure that upon first entrance of every bishop into the county, the Falchion should be presented. This dragon-slaying sword is still held in Durham Cathedral, and it's regarded as one of the best surviving examples of a falchion, a type of medieval sword. Even medieval scientists wrote about dragons. Bartholomaeus Anglicus, writing in the 1200s, says, The dragon is the greatest of all serpents. And oft he is drawn up out of his den, and riseth into the air, and the air is moved by him, and also the sea swelleth against his venom. He hath a crest with a little mouth, and draweth breath at small pipes, and straight, and reareth his tongue, and hath teeth like a saw, and strength not only in teeth, but also in his tail, and he grieveth both with biting and with stinging. He hath not so much venom as other serpents, for to the end to slay anything, to him venom is not needful, for whoever he finds, he slays. Even the elephant is not secure of him for all his greatness of body. Often, four or five of them fasten their tails together and rear up their heads and sail over sea and rivers to get good meat. And between elephants and dragons is everlasting fighting, for the dragon with his tail bindeth the elephant, and the elephant with his foot and his big nose throweth down the dragon, and the dragon binds and spans the elephant's legs and makes him fall down. Uh, But the dragon buys it full sore, for while he slays the elephant, the elephant falls upon him and slays him also. In all of this, he was following a great line of scholarly writing in these so-called bestiaries. They're the nearest thing that the medieval world had to natural history books. They defined the characteristics of various animals that you could find in the world. And they go back all the way to Pliny the Elder, a Roman writer from about the first century. The fact of the matter is, while we may view the dragon as being an entirely mythical creature consigned purely to the realm of fiction, medieval people were much less sure of that. For them, the dragon existed in a strange twilight state, somewhere between the world of fantasy and reality. 
it remained entirely plausible to many people in medieval times that dragons might exist, usually in far-off places and countries that were exotic to the writer. It's easy to laugh at this, and laugh at medieval people and ridicule them, but we live in a world where knowledge of the natural world is pretty easy to obtain, along with things like photographs and films of various animals. For medieval people who lived in England, a dragon was no more mythical than a lion, a giraffe, an elephant, a bonacon, or any other animal that they'd never seen. I sometimes suspect that I would be pretty sceptical of the existence of giraffes if somebody just described one to me and I'd never seen one. What exactly is going on with these accounts of real dragons, and what did medieval people believe about dragons? The idea of the dragon, and the belief in dragons, is a very ancient one, going back well before recorded history, and appearing in pretty much every culture around the world, although the dragons themselves differ quite a lot. The standard dragon narrative, if there is such a thing, is pretty basic. The dragon is a fearsome beast that a hero has to overcome, usually in battle. Mythology is absolutely filled with these accounts, from the Babylonian god Marduk defeating the dragon Tiamat, to Hercules fighting the Hydra. In Old English literature, the story of Beowulf gives us one of the most iconic dragons in mythology, described using the Old English word worm, meaning serpent driven to guard heathen gold through age-long vigils, to no avail. This dragon is a flying, venomous, fire-breathing menace that appears when its lair is plundered of treasure and it is disturbed. It lays waste the countryside until, spoiler alert, Beowulf kills it in a climactic battle at the cost of his own life. Here, the dragon seems to represent fate and the inevitability of death. Um, as well as the pagan forces that guard ancient treasures under the ground. To the Anglo-Saxons of early medieval England, who wrote Beowulf, this mythical creature had a symbolic importance. Images of dragons appear on the Sutton Hoo helmet, and in 1066, at the Battle of Hastings, the banner borne by the English army was a kind of windsock in the shape of a dragon, possibly derived from an ancient Roman standard called the Draco. In the stories of King Arthur, the Welsh poets used a white dragon to symbolise the Saxon English, and a red dragon to symbolise the Britons. And the red dragon, of course, still appears on the Welsh flag today, making it one of the country's most ancient symbols. In the later Middle Ages, the dragon again reappeared on English flags. Henry III and his descendants raised the dragon and flew a dragon banner as a flag of war, which symbolised that no quarter would be asked or given, and no mercy shown to their enemies. This flag was kept in Westminster Abbey, and the earliest descriptions of it describe it as red, embroidered with gold, with eyes made of sapphires, made to look as if it was moving when being flown. It's probable from later descriptions of this that it too was a kind of windsock banner, similar to that flown by King Harold at Hastings and descended from the ancient Roman banners. Myth and symbolism are one thing, but what are we to make of the actual appearance of dragons in the historical record? Like that account in the Anglo-Saxon chronicle of fiery dragons flying through the air. Many historians believe that these fiery dragons were sightings of comets or shooting stars, which were often thought by people at the time to be an ill omen. In fact, 
Halley's Comet was sighted over England in 1066 and was seen, presumably in retrospect, as presaging the disastrous year to come in which England was conquered. It might be that dragon was a sort of colloquial name for these phenomena. Um, We needn't think that medieval people literally believed that these were fiery dragons coming through the air. There's some evidence for this. Um, In Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, he says that the mythical king Uther, um, the father of King Arthur, took the surname Pendragon, which means head dragon, after sighting a comet before a major battle. This implies that comet and dragon are very much associated ideas, and that dragon was a kind of term that might have been used by medieval people to describe comets, and that this was just the name given to various impressive, fiery, aerial phenomena. In the Christian Middle Ages, the stories of dragons continued as well, and there were various ways of interpreting these classic stories. In the Bible, the serpent or dragon, is used continuously to symbolise Satan and the powers of evil. Not that they thought of dragons as being inherently evil. Remember, they believed dragons were real animals. But they were powerful, venomous, and fearsome, and so they were seen as a good symbolic representation of the evil one and his powers. Therefore, in the Eastern Church of the Roman Empire, based in Constantinople, Military or soldier saints were often shown fully armed and usually mounted in combat with a dragon. This represented the triumph of Christianity over the powers of darkness. Probably the most popular of these soldier saints was Agios Georgios, otherwise known as Saint George. When the Crusades passed through the empire, the Crusaders adopted St. George as one of their own, and many began to bear the Red Cross on a white field that was his symbol, with Genoa actually the first country to adopt it as their flag. Of course, a bland theological explanation of the dragon, which could be seen doing battle with George on his icons, would never do. And by the time St. George became popular in England, in the 1300s, The story of his battling a dragon that was terrorising the people of Libya was a well-known legend, adapting the stories of heroes like Beowulf for a more Christian era. The Golden Legend, which was the collection of saints' lives, including this story, became one of the first books ever printed in English in 1483. And he wasn't the only dragon-slaying saint, either. St. Margaret of Antioch was reportedly swallowed alive by a dragon while she was in prison. It was a tough regime in Roman prisons back in the 4th century. But her extreme holiness caused the dragon to perish and vomit her back up. She also once beat up a demon with a hammer, so was an all-round fearsome, saintly lady, who, like St. George, was very popular with people in the Middle Ages. That may have had more to do with the fact that she could supposedly forgive even mortal sins for a modest sum of money, rather than simply her dragon-slaying prowess. But nevertheless, the stories were there. There were, of course, secular dragon-slayers as well, usually brave knights, and England, especially it sometimes seems, the northeast of England, is filled with tales of brave knights who saved the countryside by killing dragons you'll usually find that some local landmark is pointed out as the lair of the dragon or the place of the combat, as with Worm Hill near Sunderland, where the famous local legend of the Lampton Worm is supposed to have taken place, 
not Pensher Hill, whatever anyone says. There's also the excellently named Nucker Hall near Lyminster in Sussex, where a dragon, which here is called a, a Nucker, it, which comes from an old English word, Nikor, meaning a, a water monster, crawled out of a deep pool and terrorised the countryside, only to be slain by a farmer named Jim Puttock, armed with a poison pie. Often, these tales seem to be used to explain dragon carvings found in local churches, as well as dramatic landscape features like deep pools or strangely shaped hills. Some people, though, have suggested other explanations for these stories, ranging from the discovery of dinosaur skeletons in the areas. Explanations also range all the way up to some creationists suggesting that dinosaurs still existed in the Middle Ages, and that anyone brave enough to fight one could be regarded as a dragon slayer. Um, I read a very long article explaining how Grendel, in the story of Beowulf, rather than the dragon, was definitely a Tyrannosaurus rex, which is why Beowulf was able to defeat it by tearing off one of its tiny, tiny arms. These local dragons, it has to be said, are not usually the great winged fire breathers of popular imagination and fantasy. They are usually worms, large, venomous, usually limbless serpents, generally depicted in the artwork as being about the size of a large horse. I guess we're to think of them more like a real animal, a sort of menace to cattle and people's lives in the area, but not so much the majestic beast that we see in something like Game of Thrones. In the local area alone, though, there are many legends of these creatures. The lantern worm is probably the most famous, but there's also the sockburn worm that was killed by the knight Conyers with his falchion. The linton worm in the Scottish borders was killed by having burning peat thrust down its throat. And near Bamborough Castle, there is the romantic legend of the ladly worm of Spindlestone Huff which was a princess who had been transformed into a dragon or a worm by the magic of her evil stepmother. Isn't it always in these stories? But all of these stories seem to have confirmed in the mind of medieval people that England had once been inhabited by dragons, although all of these stories always take place a long time ago. But people believed that such strange beasts could still be found in far-off lands. In 1569, an Italian man brought a dragon to Durham, which he claimed had devoured more than a thousand people in Ethiopia. It was described as a very great, strange and monstrous serpent, in length 16 feet, greater than a great horse. Some people have suggested that this was actually some kind of costume, elaborate costume or puppet, like a stage dragon, but perhaps it was a very large snake, something like a boa or something like that, which had been brought into the country. And not only did people believe in the dragon as a real animal, though, but the dragon was an enduring symbol of evil, of Satan, of the devil, a terrible beast, suitable to be opposed by chivalric knights and holy saints in physical and in spiritual combat as well as a symbol of power that could be drawn on by royalty to spread fear and terror, and a possible explanation for little understood celestial phenomena. That is a lot of heavy lifting for one mythical creature, but if any beast can handle it, it's the dragon. Today, you can pop up to Annick Castle on a day out and confront your very own fearsome dragon. But the dragon is not just a creature of fantasy, which has been tacked onto our image of the medieval world because of its relation to knights and castles and princesses. 
medieval people really believed that they shared their world with dragons, and its enduring popularity is testament to the hold that it had, and still has, over our imaginations. Now the next episode is going to look a little bit more at some medieval legends. We're going to look at the legend of King Arthur. Was there ever any such person? And if there wasn't, then where do all these stories come from? But until then, I'll say goodbye. Castle Stories is a Newcastle Castle production. This week's host was David Silk. You can find out more about Castle Stories and about Newcastle Castle at newcastlecastle.co.uk.